0: From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Google Pay rolls out support for peer-to-peer payments and mobile ticketing, open banking turns six months old, and death is still no excuse. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to this week's episode of FinTech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with Microsoft Azure. We're coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork, Olgate. My name's Simon Taylor from 11FS, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Sarah Kaczynski. Sarah, how are you doing?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Simon.
0: Good. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, James Stafford, you're with us. James, how are you? Very good, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, analyst from our 11FS research team, getting into all of the nerdy goodness about what's happening in the fintech world. But we're not alone. Uh, we are joining by some fantastic guests, we have Brian Glick, who is the editor-in-chief from Computer Weekly. Hello. There. Thanks for being with us and returning, is the one, the only, the unbelievable, the superstar in the stripy top. It is Nina Mahanti, business development at Bud. Hello, how are hello, you doing?
2: hello. I'm great. It didn't come home, though. It
0: didn't, but it was delayed to 2020. Uh, It's just got delayed. But that aside, uh, before we start the show, just to say that uh, tickets for our live Fintech Insider After Dark are now available. We'll be doing live shows in both London and Atlanta on the 26th of July, so don't miss out. Head to afterdark.11fs.com to book your tickets. That's afterdark.11fs.com. Do it on your mobile now. All right, uh, let's get on with this week's news. Uh, First story is all about Google Pay. The uh, story comes from TechCrunch, and this says, Google Pay rolls out support for peer-to-peer payments and mobile ticketing uh, direct in the Google Pay app. They also have this really interesting bill-splitting use case, so you can divide up a purchase and request a payment from up to five people. They also have Google Pay Send, and it could potentially compete with that. Um, then they've got this mobile ticketing piece, so they're working with Ticketmaster and uh, Southwest. It just feels to me like this is this is everything that Apple Pay already did, right?
1: Yeah, but Apple Pay has one operating system, a closed like unit. Mm-hmm. Like I am not surprised it's taken Google Pay or whatever they call yeah, it's Google Pay now this long to get here, mm-hmm. because they are they have so many more partners, they have so many more systems to work with, they have so many more devices to try and handle. Like it's not it's a very different kind of ecosystem and also you've got to think about it right apple pay is mostly used in places like the us the uk australia where people are quite comfortable with that kind of payments technology the android are like you know being used so much in the the developing countries this kind of stuff is not relevant like if you if you're you know india is 80 percent android great but they're not going to be using like southwest airlines or eventbrite are they so i think that the kind of to me there's two things one it's you know taking this long because they're system is very different, but also to their users are very different.
0: The demand wasn't quite yeah. as, quite the same. The supply side could have been there earlier. Um, but it seems to me like they've been playing, you know, like the, the big tech players have been playing around with payments forever. Like, I remember in 2011, you know, we had the first stabs. At, I think it was Google Pay, then it was Android Pay, now it's Google Pay again. And they just never seem to be able to quite get it right. And Apple Pay adoption, we found some stats online sort of saying, you know, from payments.com, uh, 3% of smartphone users have used Apple Pay for a transaction. Now it's a small but perfectly formed group and there are a lot of smartphone owners, but it's still not massive penetration several years after it's been released. I mean maybe it's coming for a J curve, but you know one, why do we think that the big brand, why do we think the big tech players want to get into this payments interface so much? Yeah the-
3: like you know, like with uh, like you were saying with Apple Pay, every everybody wants to have the the ecosystem of everything in uh, around finance in some some form, don't they? You know, the reason so many people are in payments is because it's the obvious first first place to, to get in. If you can, they're less interested, I'm sure, in the in, in the payment stuff as just in the data about what you're buying and who who you're buying it from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the you know that's the big value that that, that Apple's getting uh, getting yeah. out of it. And but even then, you know, it, it, a lot of this stuff is is imply with India. A lot of it's cultural as well. You know, the, one of the reasons Apple Pay has been so much more successful in the US is because they don't have contactless cards. People over here do, people don't People do feel the need to pull the phone out of your pocket and try and f- open up the app and, and use it when they're used to just, just pulling a card out of their uh, pocket. It's a, it's a very different
0: use case, isn't it? I, I just, it strikes me that... There was this narrative in 2011-12, which is, oh, well, the -the over-the-top players, as the telcos called them, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, they were going to come in with payments and they were going to do away with the banks by doing tech stuff like tech people do. Yeah, tech things. And it just hasn't really happened. Is it ever going to happen?
1: I think we forget that Apple needed to get payments in because iTunes is such a big part of its product suite so early on. So I think we forget that Apple had a really good reason to need to enable people to pay really quickly and easily. Um, whereas, yeah, Google, you know, does do some of that stuff, you know, and now they do have Google Music. But that's comes so much later on for them. They focused on many other things first. So I think, you know, they, that, that was Apple's arguably that you know exactly saying that's so they, they, they want the data, they want to know what you're buying, how you're buying it, they want to make sure you can buy it as easily as possible. The best the thing that makes most sense is to end the entire journey, whereas Google maybe had less incentive to do that.
0: Yeah maybe James, talk to me about the actual experience here. Does it look and feel like using Apple Pay?
4: Um, They've got a lot of similarities in terms of the actual Google Pay sent functionality. You know, you can build that into the actual messaging functions. Um, We haven't seen a version of it in the UK, so it's a little bit too early to see what the actual Apple Pay will look like now that it's new. Um, But what we can expect to see is that this is going to be fairly similar to... Um, what's going on over in India. We mentioned India earlier before, but what we're forgetting is that, you know, Google Pay Tez is the predominant player over there. They've got 12 million users. Google Tez uses the Indian UPI network. So this is the Unified Payments Interface Network, which was started by the Indian Central Bank to sort of allow the transfer of funds between banks really simply and easily. One of the things which they do really well over in India is they've got a, a large uptake of people using kind of Google phones, as we mentioned before. And Google got in there pretty early on with that. There's kind of now talk at the minute of companies like WhatsApp going into the market, you know, huge market share of Indian people using WhatsApp. We know that Google Tez works. We know that what's likely to happen is this Google Pay functionality will mirror the Tez functionality in certain ways. And they've got a kind of model there in front of them. It's it's interesting as you look out east, uh, especially to
0: China, you know, sort of uh, payments and chat have been linked together for many, many years. But it's it's really not taken off in other markets to quite the same level uh, that you would see. In India, it seems to be very much the payments use case is almost separate from the chat use case. But now maybe with WhatsApp, which does have significant penetration in the Indian market, you could start to see that change. But in developed markets, it seems to be like what you get with with some edge case exceptions is that people aren't really adopting this like your phone is your passbook to your entire digital life, in in the way that was probably
3: envisioned three or four years ago. I think you you probably need to look at it a little bit through the, through the lens of Google and apple's business models as mm-hmm. well i mean you know a- a- apple's business model is made is predominantly is making money out of selling devices and so the, the the incentive for them is they they want you to do as much as you possibly can on on the device in order to justify you buying a, a more expensive iphone next time one comes out because um you know they make a big play on some of the apps that they they don't share the data they don't they don't do stuff with the data google however is all about the data google wants data so google pay has has value because of because it wants to know what you're doing i think that's rather that's- necessarily to specifically sell sell devices.
0: I think Apple do have the device motive but they also do make a lot of money on the services like yeah, iTunes as well. We do now, yeah. uh, and so and this comes back to your point doesn't it Sarah about that actually how can I reduce the friction in buying those digital goods and services? And maybe it's that, um, that sort of mobile commerce, that buying things on your phone and reducing the friction there. Because actually when I've got my phone, getting my card out and typing in a pan and expiry ends up being this really painful experience. But again, that's not really included in some of the figures here. Everybody seems to be locked onto that. I walk into a store and use this thing to
3: pay rather than what I'm doing on my yeah. phone. And I, well, I think that's an interesting thing as well, because the, you know, the, the player who hasn't done anything in this space yet who surely will at some point, is Amazon.
1: Well, they have, I mean, they have credit cards. So they've gone old school, right? They've gone, we'll let you, and actually, interestingly, as you say, they've gone a lot of the online stuff, you know, Amazon one click, and then they've gone into a credit card the other way. You know, to the point that James, like all of that kind of ties in. You say, James is saying, you know, they, they're using... Google have gone off to India first you know, or those sort of developing countries for this payment functionality because they don't have any other alternatives Um, but they do shop online a lot so if they can go in with all these different payment services then that is a much bigger more interesting market than as you said the UK well we've all got tap and go cards anyway and that makes,
0: so when Amazon acquired Whole Foods there was a lot of speculation about is this them coming into the physical retail world and what does they do around closing that loop I remember writing a Blog post in 2010 called Closing the Redemption Loop. This idea that, you know, sort of somewhere between your Google advertising model and Facebook's advertising model, we're going to build demand, we're going to bring you to the store, and then eventually you go to pay. Somewhere between that, you end up on Visa and MasterCard and all of that information about how you got there, all of that propensity modeling, all of that data about you know all the cookies on your devices, all of that's gone and it's lost. And all of that context about you that could be used for loyalty and retargeting you and bringing you back in, there's a real disconnect between what you bought and your purchasing behavior and what you might want to do and who you are. So connecting those two is, is kind of an interesting one. All right, next story uh, about Zimbabwe's EcoCash crash, which is easy to say. A two-day crash in Zimbabwe's mobile money system shows the vulnerabilities of going cashless. Uh, so EcoCash is a dominant mobile money platform in Zimbabwe, similar to Kenya, Zenpecia. Um Mobile money mo- is the most used transaction medium in the country and accounted for 90% of all transactions in 2017. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And 8 million registered users and 23 billion... Dollars worth are transacted across EcoCash in the last six years. Wow.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the thing that we need to, that the sort of the context people need to understand is that Zimbabwe doesn't have its own currency anymore. They took it out of uh, circulation in 2015 because of hyperinflation. So now what you use in Zimbabwe is other currencies, so more what is it, more stable currencies, American dollars, uh, South African rand, and even Bitcoin at one I, point. I don't, I'm not even going to go down the Bitcoin route because I was just about to talk about how hard it is to get hold of U.S. dollars in Zimbabwe. <laughs> so uh, Bitcoin, I can't even imagine. But the the problem is that everybody is using U.S. dollar and South African rand, but there isn't enough of that currency. There isn't any liquid currency in the country. So the only thing they can do is transact electronically. It's really fascinating. Um, And I think the the point that um, is made in the article as well is that Apparently, uh, banks are no longer allowed to give out US dollars, the, the cash to people, even if somebody sends it to them from abroad. So this is above and beyond what we've seen anywhere else. There is literally no other way for these people to pay for anything. Yeah. It's not like you know, in the UK, the card network goes down and somebody's got a different card and somebody else has got a twenty pound note and you'll probably make it home. It's um, it's absolutely catastrophic. It,
0: and it speaks to what the future could be if we are much more reliant on mobile money. And uh, you know, that lack of alternatives is is really uh, concerning. Apparently, there are rumors spreading that the uh, president plans to bring back denominated uh, of the doomed Zimbabwean dollar before the elections at the end of the month. So uh, that, of course, we know has suffered uh, kind of hyperinflation. Yeah. This is an economy that has had real struggles uh, over the past sort of decade. And, and mobile technology doesn't become a nice to have like we talked with the previous story. It's mission critical to the entire lifeblood of the economy which which is just a completely different approach
3: yeah i mean i think that hyperinflation is probably the the context for a lot of this in a way because you know i can remember the you know stories on the news not that long ago a few years ago you know literally where people you know people walking into a supermarket with a with a trolley full of cash and Mm -hmm. by the time they got to the till the cash had devalued so far they couldn't buy the stuff that they were that they were buying so uh, i suspect their tolerance for problems is probably a little higher than than ours might be because it's you know you know they they, they they've been through something something so awful in, in terms of what they, ex, they experience with cash that if the mobile network goes down for a lot of them it's just oh well we'll come back tomorrow and thank goodness it was a couple of days
2: to uh, swing back to what Sarah was saying earlier so I was actually just in Kenya for the first time it was very exciting We're on safari it was awesome and while I was there so we talk about M-Pesa all the time um and we mostly talk about it, but I actually got to see it being used there. And my friend used it to pay for, you know, Ubers. And we were actually on safari in the Masai Mara and you could still pay using M-Pesa. Was brilliant. <laughs> which was like mind boggling. Like I've just seen a cheetah eat its dinner and now I'm going to pay with M-Pesa. It was phenomenal. But it brings me back to the, to what you were saying earlier about this kind of market dominance and what happens when something falls through. So when Visa went down during the payments race, luckily I had, you know, MasterCard cards that I could use. But what happens when you have something like EcoCash, which is presumably most of the market, or M-Pesa, which makes up 80% of the market share, what do you do in that case? And is there anything that needs to be done in terms of regulation to allow other competitors to come in and so that people have something to fall back on?
1: I mean, if you if talk about, you know, the, the British regulators, when they talk about how insistent they are that we have more competition in our retail banking space, you feel like this is another space where we should be insisting on competition.
0: 80% of the market is a massive dominance. but Although, in, weirdly, that, uh, that dominance they had in the market in, in Kenya meant that they could actually implement mobile money because most people had acceptance immediately. Whereas actually, M-Pesa was something that was very hard to replicate for a long time. Mobile money didn't really catch on in the same way that it did in uh, Kenya, in many other countries, for quite some time. We've seen now that it it has begun to flourish. But what's happened since then is you've got other markets where uh, you might have three or four telcos. And actually, those three or four telcos are dominant in different regions of the country, or even village to village. So you'll have one village that's with MTN, and the village next door is with Vodacom. And actually, they can't pay each other. Because the their tribal elder has a relationship with that telco, so you have this really strange situation where interoperability is really, really key. Uh, so that's something that uh, the Gates Foundation have been working with a lot of the central banks on on a project called Mojo Loop. And if you're interested in uh, mobile money and API standards, actually that's. F- far, far in advance of what a lot of the Western economies are doing around uh, payments interoperability. Mojaloop is a very exciting uh, project. As a reference, we actually interviewed Leslie ann Vaughan uh, way back in the day on uh, on one of our earlier episodes. It was titled EP203, but I'll get you the link. Leslie ann Vaughan was the lead engineer on uh, m so if you're interested to go back and listen, uh, go to fi.11fs.com forward slash four zero, which would be episode 40 in the traditional numbering, or scroll all the way back for What's titled Episode 203 Leslie Ann Vaughan, creator of MPacia. Because she talks you through the story of some of the challenges they faced, like exactly that, which is how do you get people to adopt this thing? How do you get people to trust this thing when they've only ever known cash before? It's, uh, it's really compelling. But speaking of payments glitches. Uh, there was another payments glitch coming coming closer to home here in the UK story from the BBC um, the fault in the UK faster payment system occurred between 1pm uh, and 5.30pm this past Sunday uh, so there were apparently nearly 800,000 payments delayed and the system which is operated by Vocalink which is owned by Mastercard uh, <laughs> is widely used by banks and so if you basically if you're in the UK and you want to pay somebody else typically you would log into your bank account you in, input your account number and sort code and this is a very quick way most people pay each other we often fans of the show will know we harp on about oh they don't have that in the us a lot it's actually really convenient you don't, it's true. Uh, yeah. but but when it goes <laughs> down suddenly you're lost and suddenly a whole bunch of people are left without payments so um the interesting thing here is nearly a week later faster payments are saying they're still not sure what caused it and if you remember the visa issue several weeks ago that still nobody knows what caused it like did they not know or are
3: They just oh, I mean, visa, visa, visa do visa, It was a hardware visa, thing. Wasn't yeah, I, visa, yeah, visa, visa gave out a pretty the wrong detailed. Thing. <laughs> yeah, visa visa in the end gave out a pretty detailed explanation of what happened. Oh, they, I missed that. Yeah, they, 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 it was um. It was a data tre- center. Treasury, Treasury Committee. Yeah, it was a, it was a, the, the, They had a, the Treasury Committee in Parliament had a hearing about it and said we want a detailed breakdown and they sent them. It was like an eleven-page. 11 page breakdown of exactly what exactly so
0: interesting what that the treasury select committee asks for that and they get it but the public doesn't whereas but actually so a number of a number of challenger banks reported the outages on their status pages but none of the incumbents told their customers about it
2: well and it was interesting so i bank with starling and i received this um roadblock actually that was saying that faster payments isn't running and it was sunday and um I don't know, I don't really spend much time while I'm having my Sunday roast sending money off to people. But um, that's when I
0: do all my admin. Is that when yeah. you do your day? Sunday is yeah. admin day. Yeah.
2: Um, so I kind of, you know, glanced at it. I was like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. But I'm thinking in terms of all this transparency that the challenger banks um, talk about. And it didn't affect me and I wasn't trying to make a I wasn't trying to send Sarah money for wine undoubtedly so it didn't affect my life immediately and so I almost wonder what was
1: what was better to just not yeah. bring it up or So I, I, I didn't get, I'm with Monzo and I didn't get anything uh, so I think you probably had to go into the app and, and look um, in that circumstance. They had like a little
0: like fast yeah. payment down but at the moment, sorry. sorry. I think yeah. you're
1: right I, I didn't try and pay for anything in my app so I didn't look at my app so why would I know Um, The interesting thing to me is one is that they don't know what caused it but two, the, the thing is that Vocalink was built by and until two, uh, 18 months ago owned by the banks. So anything that went wrong could be pointed straight back at them. One of the British regulators in their desperate bid for competition said, you've got to get rid of it. You can't own the infrastructure, right? You can't be the guys who own it and run it and then, like, use it. So they sold it, and they sold it to MasterCard. And it just seems to be, like, one thing after another after another. And uh, they basically, what Faster Payments said was, oh, well, we're looking into our infrastructure provider. And I'm just like, what does that even mean? Like, it means that you don't know, guys. And and MasterCard have been very silent about it.
0: But aren't we complaining about our diamond shoes are too tight? Like, we were just talking about, like... Zimbabwe's entire economy was crippled oh, by things.
3: Yeah, mean, I mean, I think no- nobody's nobody's going to. None of the banks will, will publicly admit this, but I think that they they are all factoring in technology outages into the cost of doing business these yeah. days. In the same way as they do with fraud, they all work on a certain percentage of expected fraud. I get, I get the impression they're all, they're all factoring in some, some element of, uh, of outage. Mm-hmm. It's even starting to be regulated now. you probably saw so after, after TSB and Visa, Bank of England, and the Financial Conduct Authority in the City have issued sort of a consultation on new regulations about how long you're allowed to have an outage last and what the minimum functionality because you have, to be, to, con- you <laughs> have yeah, to be able to. continue. I'm to continue. predict. What may <laughs> be, it, 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 it's just, it's, it's, be, it, I think we're getting to the point now where, where, where outages are becoming built into the financial system, and they just, you know, they're, they're annoying. And they're gonna, they're, but but, but day, people, it's just becoming the way of doing business, which is not a good thing. I'm not saying that's a good thing in, in any way. In the day
0: and age of DevOps and in the day and age of um, cloud native services and eight releases per day, when this is the downside of mainframes, the upside of mainframes is they're considered bulletproof. The downside is when they're not bulletproof, they go down for a long
3: time. Well, it's, it's not. It's not the main, It's not the mainframes going down. The, main, the mainframes generally do do do, do 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 just keep if going. It's, a, it's it's all the complexity around them. It's all the bolt-ons they've had to do to put mobile apps and faster payments and online sites around it. Those big old clunky mainframe batch transaction processing things just work, but they're horrifically expensive and inflexible.
0: James said something interesting earlier when you talked about uh, Google Tez in India sitting on top of UPI, the Unified Payments Infrastructure. In the UK, uh, faster payments now with MasterCard is potentially in this really interesting position where they could be the UPI of the UK. They could be providing all of these APIs to get real-time payments, and until 18 months ago they were owned by the banks, so maybe the banks didn't want that to happen. But surely, push payments, real-time push payments that are cheaper than card payments would be revolutionary in the market.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what everybody thinks they're going to do. It's just they haven't said it yet.
4: (laughs) Have you seen their press releases, kind of uh, what's been happening with the new payment system operator and things like that since the crash? It's all been around kind of anyone who has been affected by a payment and hasn't received should speak to their own bank, building society or other provider. You know, it's kind of this feeling that responsibility is on them. Let's get rid of this. We don't want to claim that. That's not our problem. It's odd because it's such a big commercial opportunity. But at the same time,
0: MasterCard in the UK are in a position where Visa are Are the dominant player. Visa have most of the big banking relationships. MasterCard probably covet those relationships. So, do they want to annoy the big banks by cutting into their margins? But the general view is surely payment fees are on a race to the bottom and on a race to zero. Like, if we've all accepted that, are we just prolonging the inevitable by not getting there? But from one glitch to another, the uh, the TSB, poor, poor TSB customers suffer again. Uh, apparently, they've been left in the lurch by an app update. So uh, TSB Bank of the UK, if you've been following the saga that's been happening, they tried to do an upgrade several weeks ago. They've been hauled up in front of Parliament. Uh, and then apparently they updated their mobile app in the past week. Leaving some users locked out of their accounts. The advice to their customers is they just need to upgrade to the very latest version of the app, it'll be fine this time. Um, and they've had had a bunch of complaints. It just seems to be going from bad to worse to these guys. I don't really feel for them at this point. This
1: yeah. is this, this
3: week's TSB story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: so, so last week we talked about another TSB story. Um, at that point, we we quoted some figures which we would found, um, which said that twelve thousand five hundred customers have already left TSB. They're just done, and it's not like a we're going to open a Monzo or Starling account on the side. They've gone. They've switched. They've. Use cash. That's probably the biggest use of cats has been since yeah. it launched. It's probably
3: the only big use so yeah. <laughs> yeah. It. But, but even then, that's interesting. What I found interesting about it is, is switching that round. Yeah, twelve thousand five hundred left. That's probably the, the the biggest exodus any any major all retail bank has of three million or so customers. So you know, two million nine hundred and however many yeah. are, are are still sticking, still sticking with the bank, despite the, bank. the worst, almost the worst possible experience yeah. you could have with, with with the bank. I mean, I I, I know people who've literally been. in in a position where the TSB doesn't know how much money they have in their account and they're trying to prove that money should be there and TSB TSB can't find it so it's weird how
0: we will put up with this stuff like exactly. like yeah. some some kind of abusive relationship we we <laughs> see <laughs> it
1: Absolutely. is wow yeah <laughs> it,
0: it, but it is like it's weird how we find ourselves in this relationship where the bank can actually implode and people aren't switching. It's, it's completely imploded. So, anyways,
2: I find it really interesting though. For so, I, I wrote my master's dissertation on on this essentially and um, oh, outages. Out yeah, outages and glitches. No, um, I wrote about legacy systems. But so, in this case, TSB is migrating right over to Banco Sabadé, and I am heartened, but also a little worried for our industry because, on the one hand, everyone's seeing it and going oh my God, that's terrible. And that can't be us. And um, we need to do everything we can to avoid this and let's hire crisis comms now. But on the other hand, I think we should take this as a learning experience. I used to babysit a lot. So this is this is a learning experience, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Chalk it up um, to
1: experience and move
2: on. <laughs> well, and what what I think that other banks need to recognize and learn from this is that When they start to migrate their core systems over, they should learn from TSB and be aware of the pitfalls that will inevitably arise because one day... They, they've all got to migrate, right? Well,
0: but Big Bang migrations, this is why nobody wants to do it. It's the way to get fired as a CEO is to do right. the Big Bang migration. So what are the alternatives becomes the really interesting question.
3: Oh, yeah, and why did you know? Why did they go Big Bang? In these days when, you know, even government has learned, even government with all the tech cock-ups you've seen in government over the years has learned not to go Big Bang... Um, who made the decision to just cut over on one weekend? The yeah. entire bank systems. That's a ludicrous it, thing to do. It
1: reminds me of a story where Sweden switched from driving on the left to the right overnight, and they just went out overnight and turned all the roadsides round, yeah. and it was catastrophic. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, See, seriously, the parallel's here, honestly. You can't just do that. Well,
4: what's really interesting is, um, Simon, you'll be familiar with this, but in the power station industry, especially around Yorkshire, we've got a few power stations, and my dad is a power station engineer. And... Um, Every single year they have outages on essentially really old infrastructure, 60, 70 year old infrastructure. And you're like, why are you doing this? You know, what's the point of this whole thing? And it's like, well, these power stations are really old. They need to be fixed up so they can pass their insurance and things like that. And it seems like there's a really common relationship here in the sense of you can definitely go through this process every year of outages. And, you know, and the language is the same in everything. Yeah. and it's can- a
1: legacy, legacy system that has an outage.
0: <laughs> Crumbling infrastructure is, is uh, the, I guess, the challenge of aging infrastructure uh, that you see with developing markets, they skip several generations. So China just went straight to mobile payments and didn't bother building mainframes. That Why would they bother? They'd just go straight to the latest thing. And actually, that becomes such a catalyst for innovation. So the interesting question is, if you were to start again, would you start from the same place? And would you try and move from that place or would you start from somewhere else and if you can start from somewhere else does that mean you have to turn the old thing off or can you start from somewhere else and work your way back and that that like you wouldn't start from here thing is is kind of critical when thinking about product development when you're thinking about like what proposition am i building inside my bank or financial institution or even in a fintech right uh, like if i'm going to build a thing do i start by just integrating it into everything i've already got or do i start by figuring out if it's going to work first and trying to get some users and trying to grow that it's it, it's it's Surely, easier to grow a tree than plant one inside the old one. Um, speaking of that, Acorns, um, U.S. debit cards.
2: Uh, oh, <laughs> nice, nice.
0: Yeah. Uh, so from fastcompany.com, um, Acorns uh, have launched their U.S. debit cards. So this, of course, is the uh, savings company in, in the U.S. Acorns.
1: Uh, investment company.
0: Investment company.
1: It's, uh, yeah. So what they do is uh, basically it's a roundup system. So they take every spare penny from up, you know, roundup a roundup up to the dollar and then put the money into an investment account. Um, and they've launched this card, which is uh, like every other premium card in the US made of tungsten. I'm a little bit bored Do you remember metal the last cards.
4: time that I was on this show? We were discussing this very same thing the yeah. tungsten weighty cards oh my gosh it's like, my favorite and subject you were like, you were like <laughs> I, what even is tungsten no no i mean <laughs> i know what
1: tungsten is i just feel like it's a ridiculous mess.
4: I'm saying, Just you know, I, you know
3: I read, when i was reading through the story this just seemed like it just seems like a marketing department who all sit around watching american psycho all day and yeah. convincing themselves it's a documentary is well, getting excited about this seems just bizarre
1: i've
2: i've spoken about this before on the podcast i'm obsessed with my chase sapphire card Honestly, they should just erase all my credit card history while they're at it um, because I talk about it so much. But it's it's just that bit thicker and there's that weight to. And listen, maybe I'm a millennial and I'm really digging this chartreuse. Anyone that says that it's like the transfer-wise green or the pentagreen, I disagree because it's not neon. It's more of a
1: chartreuse. But... I digress. Um, <laughs> it's 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 it's, it's a beautifully basically it's a beautiful neon color and it's metal. It's what cool. Pantone yeah, what, color is that? Um, sorry, what
4: Pantone color is that? Oh, for they, our I be able, they've, they've got
1: Surely they've got their own. They've, they've, yeah, there's a pattern on that.
2: But um, I think the thinking behind that was responsible spending and the fact that we use contactless and cards now. And I remember as a kid, like actually counting out coins to go and buy an ice cream and like feeling physical pain parting with my money, even if I was going to get an ice cream from it. So there's a bit of that, like, psychological, like, okay, you're making a purchase and you're aware of that. But then so some people were hating on the vertical um, design of it. And I kind of love it. Yeah, they are these vertical
0: design cards. I know I know a lot of this sounds like silliness and, and kind of almost like, oh, these, these are gimmicks. But I remember people said the same about Monzo. People said the same about Starling. Like, oh, it's a gimmick. Oh, it's just a prepaid card and an app. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a service with 3.5 million users and 150,000 pre-orders of a card. Now, granted, the US is a big market, but that's a really significant dent in terms of users. Now, how many assets under management do they have? And do they really need to release a pseudo-checking account? account and that does all of that and grows that relationship I don't know but there's, there's something about uh, attaching a brand identity and having something that just looks and feels different that makes a statement about who somebody is and people can attach their own identities to this thing you know people talk about the gimmick of the of the neon pink cards uh, sorry um what's hot the, coral the hot, hot coral, coral. Sorry, I could feel Jason wanting to hurt me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> the fact that we can jump in there that quickly yeah. is worrying. Yeah,
0: that tells you how much nerds we are on the show. But I do think there is something about you're solving for somebody's job to be done, and you're making a statement about who they are and want to
4: be seen as. Yeah, but I guess you've got to use the card in the first place, like in the sense of I. I'm not sure what everyone else's thoughts on this uh, are about like debit card usage in the US. It may have kind of gone up from 2012 to 2015, but after that, we've seen and uh, you know people are going back to credit cards. Forty uh, percent of People in the U.S. apparently are now using stating a preference yeah, for I, credit cards. Yeah, I completely
1: agree with you. But what Acorns have done is introduced rewards. Boom! That's what the Americans use credit cards for, yeah. right? Like, oh, so, we, oh, we <laughs> love a good reward. Yeah. So I yeah. see your point, James. It's yeah. quite.
4: You no, know, I'm just saying. You know, Acorns invest predominantly in ETFs. You know, it's not kind of supercharged.
1: Yeah, so, the, the product, oh. so the, the, basically the product was originally, you 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 linked the Acorns app to whatever card you used, and then they rounded it up, and then they took that money out, and they put it into a portfolio. And basically, they're a robo-advisor with a different kind of front on them. Um, they just invest it, as James says, in very uh, low-cost funds. What they're trying to do, obviously, is boost, as Simon said, their assets under the management by getting you to spend more, is basically what's happening here. Um, But it's not their own account, they don't have a license, all that kind of stuff.
2: Wait, I have one last thing about yeah. design, right? Okay, so... Back to the vertical thing, there is a branch and it is going vertically up the card, and that's supposed to symbolize your savings growing, right? Savings—they're an
1: investment. Yes, but (laughs) you could lose every penny. Fine, your investment
2: growing, but on top of that, this is very important to me as an American, right? Um, The thinking behind that, so um, the design agency is Ammunition, based in San Francisco, was to start to nudge Americans as well to start getting used to using chip and pin as opposed to magstripe because for those of you that aren't aware we love a magstripe in the United <laughs> States and actually we don't even do chip and pin we do chip and sign which blows my mind but i hope that well the people that start to use, the 3.5 million that start to use it will kind of start getting used to the chip part and then we'll add in the pin part and then we'll finally be caught up with the rest of the world. No, 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 we'll, be, we'll have moved on by then. But Acorns, <laughs> um, if you're listening, I would totally love a card, so.
0: Shout out to Acorns. Did you hear that? Nina wants a card. All right, <laughs> people. Uh, we're on that bombshell, uh, let's just take a quick word from our sponsors and we'll be back shortly.
3: Imagine A new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster.
0: Welcome back. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients, big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team or drop us an email. Hello at 11FS.com. Now on with the show. Apparently, a Swedish bank has fired its chatbot.
1: Yeah. So, Just going to
0: leave that there.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, basically, um, she's a coworker, not a chatbot, oh, okay. and she's called Amelia, and she's she has a name. She's God. very uh, she's she also has a face. She's. Blue-eyed and blonde-haired, and she will guide you through your onboarding journey. The company that makes this particular assistant, AI assistant, has sold it to quite a few Nordic banks. Um, She is uh, supposed to, as I said, help you with the onboarding journey to start with. uh, The the reason that Nordnet, which is this bank that's fired fired her, I'm using inverted uh, air quotes right here, um, was that it failed to speed up onboarding new customers and also to improve customer satisfaction.
0: So can we say that another way? the chatbot didn't work
1: well but also i mean yes the chatbot didn't work but i also i think that maybe they have realized that there are other things that they could spend their money on that would produce oh, the same oh, results oh, wait, wait, wait. so didn't... let me get this right having a chatbot doesn't
0: solve all of the world hunger
1: I'm not. So I, I'm i just going to like take slight issue with that because I think that it's not the chatbot per se that's the problem. I think is that this particular AI assistant has so much um, investment in the visual representation in her movement and the way she talks to you and all this kind of stuff. Like, you just want a little message down the bottom of the screen, which is like, uh, how do I take a picture of my passport? So do it weirdly,
0: Habito, we were just talking about during the break really good at that like they start a conversation with you that's a back and forth dialogue and you feel like oh this is a reasonable conversation but it's a chat interface it's not a chat bot it's just an interface that asks questions and responds to yours and prompts you for how to respond to it so that it can respond to you Mm -hmm. better choose one of these three responses it's almost like those video games from the 1980s that were story driven you know it's like you're walking to a field and now you choose a or b B. do you you turn left do you turn right yeah it's like a choose your own adventure wow, getting a mortgage is like choosing your own adventure with Habito and other apps are available. (laughs) Uh, But like that sort of thing, it, it makes sense. But to your point, Sarah, people tend to focus on the wrong stuff. They focus on like how human and lifelike is this thing when actually nobody gives a crap because they're trying to do a job. Like the customer doesn't want how great your AI looks and feels. They want to do a thing. Like, so very quickly get out of their way and let them do that thing and maybe it would succeed.
3: On the wider market, Amelia's been a pretty successful product. It's, it's, you, know, not, you know, it's used beyond just just naughty banks. And, uh, you know, t- to me what this this shows up is is management of expectations around around some of these things a, a lot. There's plenty of organisations that are using... Amelia or or other similar chatbots and doing do, doing all right with them, but there you know the, of course there is so much hype around this stuff and and I think people's expectations are you'll bring one of these things and it's going to be amazing and you're going to be able to you know get rid of hundreds of call centre staff and onboarding mm-hmm. staff and all and it all that. It was sort of thing. a cost thing, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah,
1: well that's what I was going to say. I think I think also Amelia is sorry, and Nordnet uh, Nordnet is actually quite a small bank, so I think they have more money. Do you know what I mean? Like about saving money to spend elsewhere. Sorry, Nina, you were trying to say something. Like, um,
2: yeah, actually, so two things. One along with AI is not going to fix everything, um, Pepper the robot also isn't going to fix anything. That's a complete <laughs> aside, but I just want everyone to hear it from my mouth. Um, second, though, is um, this was really interesting to me because Nordnet said that they've decided to let their virtual assistant Amelia go. But SEB, which is very, very large Swedish bank, um, has also used Amelia and hasn't seemed to have problems, which was really interesting to me because... It came down to the training data that they were using. And so when we talk about AI, um, sometimes we forget that there are algorithms that are behind it and there's data being fed into it. And what is the product is what is being put into the sausage machine, right? And so we see something that could be very similar, but actually it's turned out into two different things based on the training data that it was given and the way that it was trained as an algorithm. And so when people say like AI is going to fix everything or there's no such thing as bad AI or evil AI or ethics in AI, I actually Beg to differ
0: you're as good as your data right you're exactly. as good as your data set and actually if as an organization one you don't have a decent size of data set that's that's one issue the other one is what's that data quality and can you even access it because a lot of big organizations their data is in different silos it's not connected it's not obvious how one bit of data relates to the next you know i've seen uh, various organizations bring in chief data scientists and governors what else to try and solve that take three years and figure out it's too hard
4: and there's um We mentioned the point earlier about managing expectations, and I think uh, you can look at someone like Revolut as as someone who's dealt with this really well. You know that, yeah. In terms of their chat functionality, um, you know, you you are in the Revolut app, you can chat with their bot, and they can provide a series of canned responses to you. And once they don't know the answer to your question, they hand off to a a customer support worker. You know, there's no kind of, you know, they're, they're not pretending that this chat function is the be all and end all. They have things in place to help you to to moderate your expectations and they tell you don't
2: they when you, when you open it, they say, like, we're going to use this chatbot to help figure out what your need is, and then if we can't resolve it, we'll pass you on to human.
0: Which I think managing expectations exactly. is really, really key. Let's not pretend this is the same as a human and try and humanize it too much. I do think there's something to be said for that. And, and people are doing chatbots as well. I mean, the next story is about Plum, who are a chatbot, you know, Clear or another one that has that started to come a long way. Plum have actually integrated to both Monzo and Starling. Um, so,
4: James, talk us through what is Plum and, and what have they done in this integration? um so plum are a really good chat function where which is kind of measuring people spending and helping people to save and so on first i should say that we will have this journey in pulse next week so any of our pulse users go in and take a look next week you'll find it there you can take a look at how they're actually doing the integrations Um, 11fspulse.com (laughs) 11fspulse.com um so first thing to note is that um so Plum are using a service called TrueLayer, which we can, uh, which is mentioned here. Um, oh, yeah, so they're
0: one of these aggregators, right? So they help people uh, you know, kind of uh, take different APIs from different banks. That's right,
4: yeah. So they provide the access to the API without meaning that smaller banks and so on don't have to provide their own infrastructure for this. Um, so what happens in the journey is, is that Monzo connects with TrueLayer via one of their magic links, so the magic link email hyperlinks. Um, then once through, TrueLayer requests for Plum to have access to the personal information, accounts, transactions, balance, and user data when offline, and then you go through to Plum from there. So it's essentially it's kind of like three gates um, to get there. It's a slight kind of middleman from TrueLayer, but what it means is that you can access all this information from someone like TrueLayer without actually giving away access to things like you know your login details or so on. So, th- so this just kind of seems sensible, right? It, like it, it's not trying
0: too hard I, it feels a bit more like a feature than a company um when it comes to this stuff but Plum say they've saved 24 million for one hundred thirty thousand users that's not nothing
1: but how much money have they made? That's the no. question. When you talk about, I know, you need, Nina, you have thoughts on this as well, but like when you say it's a feature rather than a company, yeah, it's fabulous. And right now, Monzo and Starling don't have to build that themselves. They can just integrate with Plum. But like, how do you make a successful business out of that?
2: Well, and actually, we we kind of saw this, didn't we, with um, Moneybox. So Moneybox is a business that flicks or rounds up in the way that Acorns does um, your purchases, and then it flicks it into a savings or an ISA account. We were like, oh, this is great. But is it a feature or is it an actual product? And um, shortly after, we started seeing um, pots, right? Is that what it's called on Monzo? And yeah, it's savings called, pots. Savings yeah. pots. And it's called something else on Revolut. But they've started... Vaults. In, vaults. And you can, you can opt into it and they'll start doing that as well. This really confused me because Plum, I see them as a, a personal finance management tool and... Um, or a chatbot for that, and yeah, so,
0: it's a chat-driven PFM,
2: right? And I was su- surprised in a way that um, Monzo and Starling were doing this integration. I mean, it's great; I'm all for it. But then, to what you were saying earlier, James, about the connecting all of that with GDPR, how many roadblocks <laughs> does that mean? Now you're passing your information to TrueLayer and then passing on to this and then that and then that. Does that, in terms of regulation, how many times do you actually? let someone know that their data is being passed on and what does that mean for UX moving forward? Because I can see that being a bit annoying, like, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. It's just like, take my data already. But um, legally, you're required to yeah, let them know.
1: I, I, think, I think the argument would be that TrueLayer would certainly have is that they don't hold or see any of that data. They just pass it. It's probably tokenized from X to Y. And then, yeah, Plum do see your data and Monzo also see your data, but you would kind of expect mm-hmm. both to. I mean, I think I think the the point about the integration is maybe they're just trying it. Maybe they're seeing how many people like it and then they'll do their own thing or who Try knows. Well, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if we start to see some of these um, challenger banks acquiring. Like, I wouldn't be, We've already seen a little bit of it. I wouldn't be surprised if we yeah, start to see more no, it of it. Yeah, it makes
0: sense. If somebody's done that feature and the
4: feature works and it's going to be quicker to acquire it, um, then, then maybe, maybe that happens. And it's pretty low risk for them as well. Like in terms of, it's very easy for them to connect with someone like Plum if they're using, as I said, TrueLayer. You know, they don't have to put a lot of effort into that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, this,
3: this 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 is this is fairly typical market behaviour that we've seen. Around, most stuff around mobile and uh, an internet before it. Lots of lots of you know emerging companies like this trying stuff, just playing. Does will it work? Somebody'll give them some money. Well, let's give it a go. Let's see if it works. If it does, great. Let's put some more money into it. If not, yeah, let's make it a feature of something else. Let's. You know let's look for an exit and get get something to buy it and and then this is still a, you know this this is still a very young, very emerging area without without a huge amount of consumer demand, so it's quite low risk to try a lot of this stuff and it's a really fair point to say that the beachhead of an early company is not
0: what it will be when it gets older, yeah. so you know Monzo wasn't a prepaid card and an app it was something else. Revolut wasn't just an f x thing it's doing a lot more than that now, so what you start out being and what you end up becoming could be two different things and the Lord knows Facebook took what eight nine years before they figured out how they were going to monetize mm-hmm. so sometimes if people believe in it and you're getting users and you're getting scale then it could work so we could be wrong on this stuff and i think we're got to keep an open mind for that um speaking of open minds uh georgia now has a space bank
1: sorry (laughs)
4: Uh,
2: (laughs) what a transition Uh, (laughs) love
1: it
4: it wasn't quite as slick as the acorns (laughs) do you want to do
1: that again without me like I promise not to laugh this time
4: no no leave all of that in that's amazing (laughs) Um, all right so from
0: bankinnovation.net how TBC Bank to be confirmed (laughs) created a neobank called space in just eight months so space neobank which launched in June has 65,000 users bless them Um, it's going to use TBC bank's license and it will operate as a Standalone entity. Space will provide its customers with current accounts, savings accounts, loans, investments products, and a debit card powered by Visa. I love this. It was important for us to keep costs low. For that, we've kept the team small. We've used a cloud-based platform and agile technology, whatever that stuff is. A lot of neobanks fail because they have very high operational cost. Said the Space project owner. Like, yeah. It.
1: I mean a lot of neobanks do have operational costs because they build their own technology and get their own license mm. like this bank is it's not a neobank it's a new brand from an existing bank so it's doing what we've actually seen quite a lot of the French banks do which is uh, we're going to try like a different brand to attract a new demographic but also to go back to a point we were saying earlier we're going to try a new core stack provider so what these guys are doing is they're using a company called I think it's Mamboo or Mambu Mambu so they haven't built anything they're just Bought out
0: No no they haven't, but then this is really interesting because they have done this is a radical departure from what uh, say simple did originally and from what Moven did. Like so a lot of those organizations took new front ends. So you had a nice flashy mobile app, but it was still like big old Chase in the background and big old Chase's mainframe in the background. But this, that's because
1: they have to. Because they cannot do standalone technology in the US because of the licensing. Right. So that's so. This is why in, in Georgia it's kind of like yeah, it's the same as in France or whatever. You can stand it up alone over here and but nobody I think minds. Community
0: banks in the US are in this really interesting position where they do have a license and they could go national with that license with a new technology stack. So um, Cross River Bank has been famous for this for quite some time, um, but there are many others that could follow that route where you effectively find yourself in a position where they could stand up a brand new core banking platform. Mambu, Lavaris, uh, there are many others out there, and those core bank. I mean this is a lot of what we do for for some of our clients is you build the entire new stack again because you're starting from a different place and if you're starting from a different place then you don't have to deal with integrating to all of those things you build a new stack so i can see the logic for it but you know with the likes of uh finn and citizens access coming along finn was was it jp morgan chase
1: yeah it was chase Yeah.
0: And then uh, you've got Marcus coming from Goldman.
3: Like, are,
1: are going to really clarity. make a difference? Yeah, well,
3: this, this, this—you know, this, this technology has got to get commoditized for it to get, yeah. to, for it to get ubiquitous. And as Sarah was saying, you know, it's the regulate the regulatory problem is, is is the issues here. It's not, it's not the technology. The technology is available; anybody can do it. As we were talking about right at the start of the show, you know, the the, the problem the big banks have got is they used to differentiate themselves on their big back end transaction processing. The, the fintechs of the future are not going to differentiate themselves on the technology they've got because the technology is going to be is, is going to be a commodity. Yeah. Um, so you know the, the, this idea of a bank being able to say, yeah, you know, we we're, there was you know twenty of us and we we set up a bank in in twenty days once we got all the regulation and the, and the licensing in place, that's going to become pretty common. That's not going to be the way that you're going to you're, you're going to differentiate yourself. And certainly you know o- over time somebody is going to start to offer you know com- commoditized banking software for you to build a brand around you know maybe it might be amazon or google or someone you know thing. really yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah maybe that's where amelia could find a new job you know <laughs> 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 amelia in the yeah, chatbot yeah. you've yeah. got a new home coming for you
0: i, I do think at that point about licensing is a really really good yeah. one because like there are a lot of challenger banks you know from n26 to monzo and stalling who have all eyed to the us and maybe it's easier for them to go buy one of these licenses than it is to try and go through the licensing out. I mean the, the interesting thing with getting licensed in the UK is you had both the FCA, the PRA and the Bank of England all align around this is how you get a license and yeah. here's the process and we're gonna make it really clear and we're gonna proactively reach out to you. The US you've got fifty-two states, you've got to deal with all of the federal regulators, they're all different. In the UK it's a lot more concentrated and you had a competition problem. The US you've got over eleven thousand banks.
3: There's there's gotta be opportunity out there. I mean imagine imagine a situation where instead of having to get a license for to be a bank you could get a license for the the back end banking technology amazon say build back end build a, build a big banking transaction engine license that or with everybody around the world and then basically anybody who uses that that amazon licensed technology can set up a bank well that's sort of what Solaris you know, that, bank that's, did you know so yeah, Solaris, that's Solaris the way bank in Germany the way things have got to change.
0: Solaris bank in Germany do exactly that they they have a banking license and a technology platform and if you partner with them you not only get a technology platform, you get to use their license in Germany, which I think is incredibly brave and incredibly bold, but really interesting in, in, in terms of a model. So we'll, we'll see this emerging, I'm sure. But it's a, it's a mini birthday. I don't know if you're aware. Um, open banking is now six months old. Um,
2: We've become um, new new parents where we're like, the kid is measured in months as a you are like, oh, she's eighteen months now. Like it's being oh, open banking's been weaned onto the hard months. stuff now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. So
0: as of Friday the thirteenth, um open banking is six months old, and as of Friday the thirteenth, Donald Trump pays his first visit to oh. the UK. Um <laughs> Uh, so nearly all of the nine banks who've asked for an extension to meet their initial deadline uh, have now caught up, apparently. Uh, public awareness remains low. It's very low. It's very weak. It's very terrible. It's really bad. It's it's, it's it, it lacks energy. Um, the adoption of use cases is on the up, though, apparently. Um, over 50% of people who need to verify their income through Zopa choose to do so by connecting their bank account. So this is people who've kind of gone into the Zopa enrollment process, Zopa being a peer-to-peer lender in the UK. That's pretty interesting. Why didn't I know that fact before?
2: But th- those but two last things that you said make complete sense to me. So just because public awareness remains low doesn't mean that adoption wouldn't be on the rise. Because, you know, when, when people use, a, use Instagram, for example, they wouldn't necessarily be, oh, I'm using the internet. Like these yeah. days, whereas you know when it was when the internet first started out, we were all excited about. Same thing with blockchain. Maybe we'll get to a point one day where someone is using some sort of application where you don't necessarily need to understand the underlying technology, but you're benefiting from it. Well, no?
1: I'm fairly sure that the reason that TrueLayer can provide an integration between Plum and Monzo is because TrueLayer is uh, licensed as an AISP. So, uh, you know, there are. I don't know what
0: you heard about me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um oh dear the jokes this week um but Oh, I think
0: the jokes are fantastic, He's on Sarah. Fire. Simon's
1: on fire today. <laughs> Where's Laura? Come back and write our puns. But the point is, it's you don't really care whether you know it exists or not. It's Do about, I care how
0: Netflix works? No, I want my movie now done. Yeah, it. exactly. And so and adoption is more important than awareness. Like going and asking people on the street with Vox Pops, have you heard of open banking? Is a stupid thing to do. In terms of awareness, what matters is do you know how to protect yourself online? Do you know you of sort of what the risks are of operating online. Those things are important. And I think, God bless them, Barclays does actually a really good job of sort of digital awareness and oh, all no, of that that's stuff.
1: that's not the root vegetable video, is it? Have you seen the root vegetable video about protecting your data online? Oh,
0: yeah, no, that's kind of scary. Yeah, that's
1: terrifying. All right,
0: so if you're listening and you're not from the UK, do watch a Barclays advert about root vegetables on YouTube if you can find it. It is a little bit freaky, and it came out around Friday the 13th. So, anyways, um, let's move on because we've got our and finally story, which is um, comes from the BBC. Uh, Nina has read the headline, as you can hear. Uh, PayPal told a customer her death breached its rules.
1: This is like my future. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I could just see it. Oh yeah, so, so okay, so the context is that this lady died and she owed money through PayPal basically. She owed about 3200 pounds. Um which was which is why they bothered to get in touch. I don't it wasn't necessarily per se because she died. Um but the problem was that there was this kind of complete hole in communication. So her husband had informed PayPal that this lady had died, but Even the, showed the death certificate. Yeah, but the department that dealt with that was not the department that then issued her with a notice saying you've breached our terms and conditions by not paying it back. Um, yeah, but look, I love this statement that comes from
0: them. You are in breach of condition 15.4 bracket C of your agreement with PayPal credit. As we've received notice that you are deceased. This breach is not capable of remedy.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's... <laughs> Somebody,
3: somebody, 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 yeah, somebody programmed in, condi- you know, cl- clauses at if which then. there is no outcome, <laughs> death yeah, being, yes, exactly. so being number 3.2. It's an if statement. It's an if statement. statement. <laughs> it clearly is. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what it is?
0: It's a recursive loop. This <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. is this is the definition of recursion in software, which is an infinite yeah, yeah, yeah. loop. Yeah. This would be a bug if it was in software.
1: Like, Well, no, yeah. it says no. There, were is three, it there were three, three possible explanations. A human error. I'm going to put it out there. That seems unlikely to me. Um A bug. Or a bad letter template, which takes us back if statements yeah exactly
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so the uh, the new show title two weeks ago was uh, death is no excuse like death is no excuse for PayPal right they're going to come after you <laughs> but no wonder their share price is at an all time high <laughs>
2: they're doing well they're, they're coming after dead
0: people uh, if you work for PayPal we're sorry but that was funny uh, thank you very much all right on that note that wraps up this week's news show thank you very much of course to all of our guests uh, Nina where can people find out more about you
2: I'm usually trolling around on Twitter Twitter at Nina Mahanti or at this underscore is underscore bud.
3: Underscore. Alrighty. <laughs> Brian, what about you? Uh, go to computerweekly.com to read all about what we do and I'm on Twitter
4: at, at Brian Glick. No underscores? No underscores at all. <laughs> Damn it. James, any underscores? Uh, none for me I'm not on the Twitter either I'm more of a LinkedIn kind of person uh, but go to 11FS Pulse more than anything to go and see what we're doing over there you'll find a lot of value in there yeah no if you haven't checked it out do I love that thing uh, Sarah
1: well if you don't know where to find me by now you're not listening often enough but I am still on Twitter at Sarah Koshansky and more recently I'm on Forbes.com so you can go and find some of my writing over there
0: yeah just taking over the world one article well, at time.
1: You.
0: <laughs> a time I dig it I'm all for it uh, you can find me at SY Taylor on Twitter as always if you like what you heard this week, come and talk to us at FinTech Insiders on Twitter, podcast at 11fs.com. And please, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button and tell your friends to listen too. If you like stories about people dying and PayPal trying to get them, this is what you come for. This is what you. Uh, and
2: chartreuse cards.
0: And chartreuse cards, your vertical cards. This is why you subscribe. <laughs> and this is why you need to just WhatsApp all of your friends in that uh, FinTech group you've got on WhatsApp right now and tell them to subscribe. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye.